this is a lecture recording for the second part of the third section of Saeed's essay, uh, which is called Projects. Uh, this is for the course Literary Theory. Edward Said's Orientalism is the name of the book. And we had left off uh, just before the uh, just before a discussion of Napoleon's uh, description de l'Egypte. Um, and uh, the remainder of the section is mostly a description of and a discussion about the after effects of this massive uh, project that uh, Napoleon himself had undertaken. There were only two before him which we had discussed in the last uh, lecture recording. And when Napoleon was on his way to Egypt to so-called uh, conquer Egypt along with the French army, he had taken with him um, several dozens of what he called savants for the Egyptian um, expedition and um, this included mathematicians, scientists, natural historians, artists, engravers and all manners of other intellectuals who would be able to uh, record, observe and make note of, you know, make a catalogue of in a certain sense all aspects of the ancient as well as modern life of Egypt. And this, uh, this, this grand uh, project in a certain sense, according to Said, was the most monumental aspect of, or was the most monumental representation of actually, of this project of Orientalism and uh, how we understand Orientalism now as a field of study which can be undertaken by the West for cataloging and for decoding, for deconstructing the East is actually all our modern understandings of this aspect of the Orient stem from, to a very large extent, this particular project undertaken by Napoleon. And so on page number 81, he says that, um, you know, this, um, the members of uh, this project, which was called the Institute d'Egypte, was founded by, which was founded by Napoleon, all of these, uh, you know, the members of this particular institute were the people who were doing the cataloging on behalf of Napoleon. And Napoleon took a very personal interest in the way in which these scholars were uh, trying to understand uh, Egypt and how they were recording it. Even before they reached Egypt, um, there were a lot of discussions about earlier works of Egypt. And uh, Said also talks about it a little later on. We are going to come to that in a minute. Um, so, uh, Said says that before this, um, Napoleon, the, uh, you know, the other work which Napoleon took very, very seriously was uh, written by somebody called Comte de Volney. He was a French traveler and the name of his book was Voyage en Egypte et en Syrie. Um, and this is, this basically translates to the voyage to Egypt as well as to Syria. And this was published in 1787. And, um, Napoleon had read this book and this particular book according to Said is one which is the style of the book is completely objective except for the preface where Comte sorry Volney actually talks about how he uh, how he came about the money through which he could actually travel to Egypt to make his observations and to record them uh, the style of association with the Egypt is thoroughly um, well, objective in a certain sense and by focusing on this kind of objectiveness, by focusing on this kind of um, uninvolved distancing, Said says this sort of lays down as it were a sort of a systematic 
justification for the work being objective as well as for it being non-biased even you know even from a perspective of of a european looking down at the east and uh, it also contains an account of islam and uh, it, it's very well known that napoleon was very interested in islam and when he actually went to egypt uh, one way in which he tried to buttress his position in egypt was by uh, projecting his army's um, intrusion into egypt as a project which was geared towards uh saving the egyptians from the mam mam mamluks or the mamadukes mm. these were middle eastern um you know islamists and um then he says that um you know volney also the other interesting thing that he doesn't you know um, sai talks about it all the way on page number 81 he says that uh volney in a certain sense or reading volney might have been napoleon's justification for conquering egypt because volney says that uh, you know the near e- orient or egypt is as likely a place for the realization of french colonial ambition as he could ever find so he says that egypt is sort of the befitting colony for a great nation like france and for the french napoleon and for the french colonial army under the leadership of napoleon to aspire to because it's as great an army as france is you know a great colonizer in that sense and then volney says that there are only three barriers to french hegemony in the orient Uh, or any french force would therefore have to fight three wars the first would be against england and england had france had been fighting it on various fronts for uh, various colonies throughout the world the second was against the ottoman porte um, you know the ottoman empire which originated in the middle east uh, some of its influences were, uh, were uh, felt also in india the third and the most difficult against the muslims the muslims in egypt and so this is the fight that napoleon takes head on and how that happens is we're going to come to that in another minute and molnay's assessment was both shrewd and hard to find fault since it was clear that napoleon it was clear to napoleon as it would be to anyone who read molnay that his voyage and the considerations were effective texts to be used by any european wishing to win in the orient basically what he is saying is that molnay's work constituted a handbook for attenuating the human shock a european might feel as he directly experienced the orient right so volney says if you can read the book uh, if you can read his book if you can read other books like him but you know technically his book then you can know exactly what to experience or what to expect in you know expect to experience in the orient one is you'll find a lot of britishers there you'll find a lot of resistance the other one is that there is impact of the ottoman empire and the third is that there are a lot of muslims who will have to be uh, dealt with before the egyptians can actually be uh you know uh, they can be colonized and in that sense what it does is not only that it creates a sort of a categorized uh you know textual analysis of the life of egypt and uh, it prepares napoleon for what he would expect when he reaches there but at the same time um it does something very interesting which is that it creates this huge um he he creates egypt as this great uh, colony which is waiting for a great army like the french army to go and to you know lay their claim to it but at the same time by mounting these three uh, by saying that the french army was capable of um you know winning over these three very very difficult and very very 
you know uh, great forces historical as well as political as well as military forces uh, to be able to win over such a great uh, resistance three such great resistances and to be able to colonize um, the country would basically mean that it would enhance france's position as a colonial power which anybody else anywhere else would think twice or thrice before actually opposing because they are able to overcome these kind of differences here and perhaps uh, because of napoleon's obsession with alexander and with the orient and perhaps this might have been very very fundamental in his uh, you know in him being attracted to the orient as as it was so from the moment that um, napoleon's army which was called army egypt d'egypte which basically means the army of egypt they appeared on the egyptian horizon every effort was made to convince the muslims that nuzom lebqai muslimans which basically means that we are the true muslimans so bonaparte would actually tell um, you know or he would proclaim or he would have his armies uh, you know act in a way in which this particular message would actually go across to the egyptians that we are the true muslim muslims and uh, the ottomans are actually not and uh, he could perhaps do this precisely because of the nearness of islam and of christianity because islam was seen in a certain sense as being originating from christianity and we've talked about it before um precisely because of the strong bond that existed between these two religions napoleon could look at himself as somebody who's given rise to this great christian nation but at the same time also who can lay claim in a you know in a religious and in an intellectual manner over a religion that is seen in europe as being born out of their own religion so they could lay claim to the muslims and um, in an in that kind of an idealistic fashion he could actually say to the egyptians that we are the true muslims we really understand ideologically as well as uh, morally what it is to be a muslim and in that sense bonaparte tried to sort of uh, you know make himself endear himself to the egyptians and um, his team of orientalists they were you know uh, they were um, they started doing the work as soon as they reached egypt and napoleon used egyptian enmity towards the mamluks and appeals to the revolutionary idea of equal opportunity for all to wage a uniquely benign and selective war against islam so while proclaiming to everybody that we are the true muslims he could also wage a fairly selective war against the mamluks who were um, i would have to look this up but uh, the mamluks were uh, they originated from uh, from central um, from, uh, from middle east and they were uh, they were uh, seen as the people who had to be who had to be defeated so that true islam could actually win so he was both against islam he was trying to defeat islam which was seen as this historic power which had been uh, which had uh, which had stopped christianity from really getting its lion's share of the world but at the same time he was also using islam to fight against what he projected as the corrupt uh, version of islam so that's very uh, important in this sense so napoleon tried everywhere to prove that he was fighting for islam everything he said was translated into quranic arabic just as the french army was urged by its command always to remember the islamic sensibility and this was fairly unique this is the way in which 
a lot of the later colonial discourse was fashioned in in the voice of or in the grand narrative of beneficence of appealing to the uh, humanity of those who are being colonized and saying that you know the colonizer is like the beneficent parent who is doing even if they have to do crude things or sometimes violent things or seemingly unfair things they are basically for the good of the colonizer of the colonized people but basically what was happening was of course the exact opposite of that but creating this sort of meta narrative which justified the actions while actually and practically going against those actions and whatever proclamations were being made that cleverness is uh, is is according to said was at its best here in napoleon's um you know in napoleon's egyptian um project and so said says that it's the exact opposite of what colonial discourse was almost everywhere else people who were being colonized everywhere else in the world were being told that you are being colonized because you are uh, you're uncivilized you're not fit to be um, you know you're you're not fit to be part of a world economy or a globalized economy until unless you can be europeanized and he gives an example of this um, in 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 a spanish proclamation to the indians in 1530 he says we shall take you and your wives and your children and shall make slaves of them and as such sell and dispose of them as their highness the king and queen of spain may command and we shall take away your goods and shall do you all the mischief and damage that we can as to vessels who do not obey vessels are basically slaves or servants and so it it's it's uh, you know the way in which both of these discourses are operating is obviously it's it's the exact opposite of it and it's very very obvious but uh, one way in which said says this made sense to napoleon this kind of strategy was because napoleon understood this is force was too small right and egyptians um because they were they had the uh, benefit not only of numbers but also of knowing that they belonged to a historical culture which was far grander and which was far older than uh, the ones that the that that the europeans are trying to impose of them impose on them so what napoleon tried to do was that he tried to uh, befriend the local imams the qadis the muftis the ulamas and he tried to get them to reinterpret quran or to find images and verses from the quran which he could use to justify what uh, the grand army the army the egypt were or napoleon's army in egypt was actually trying to do Now, do you see um, uh, references or do you see parallels to how um, this functions in later colonial discourse as well Uh, for those of you who don't know uh, hitler did the same thing in the 20th century when he reinterpreted or misinterpreted both the gita as well as uh, you know several other um, indian uh, scriptures which talk about the greatness and grandness of the aryan race but he also misinterpreted philosophers like nietzsche and he used all of these misrepresented texts and their ideas to justify the kind of genetic purging that he was carrying out in um, you know um in in germany in nazi germany so um napoleon obviously had the intelligence to do it much before and um in that sense it you know um, a lot of people could see that napoleon actually had a lot of admiration for islam and for muhammad for him it was not he was not feigning that and so people you know sort of soon they um, they 
grow to they they grew to um you know trust him at least a little bit uh, because the population of cairo soon seemed to have lost their distrust of the occupier so in that sense napoleon does set the um does set the you know the pattern for later colonizers and the religious islamic leaders whom they could win over any other politics was too expensive and foolish and that's what napoleon said and then there's a um you know uh, then victor hugo's uh, poem is given here it's basically just praise for napoleon please read it before and according to sai this kind of uh, you know this kind of triumph uh, had been prepared before the military expedition into egypt and when he says that he basically means that textually napoleon had understood what egypt was or what to expect before he went into egypt so that he could uh, preempt how he would carry out the expedition in egypt and that is one of the main reasons the reduction of a whole culture of a whole historical entity into a textual um into a textual categorization in a certain sense that is the reason why egypt was um, overtaken by the french and so um, that's what said says on page number 83 he says the idea of taking along a full scale academy is very much an aspect of this textual attitude to the orient and this is what he is going to keep on emphasizing throughout the text he says establishing an ecole ecole publique which is a public university or a public school in the bibliotheque nationale to teach arabic turkish and persian whose object was a rationalist one of dispelling mystery and institutionalizing even the most recondite knowledge thus many of you napoleon's orientalist translators were student of this particular person who then later uh, sylvester de sacy and sylvester de sacy was the person who um, who taught and who was the patron and who was the guide for most of the orientalists throughout the next century and so on and so forth so that is where the institutionalization of oriental knowledge as an academic discipline actually begins through this ecole publique in the bibliotheque which was established around this time uh, by napoleon and from this institute began the study of the orient as an academic discipline and then it got buttressed and then you know the orientalism as a discourse and colonialism as an economic and uh, uh, economic and political um, system they each supported uh, you know the other but um, but said says that dealing with the muslims was only one part of napoleon's project to dominate the egypt he did use the information and the knowledge that was available of the muslims to to uh, to make his project in egypt much more efficient and much more effective but that was only one part of it the other part according to said and this is on page number 83 was to re- render it completely open to make it totally accessible to european scrutiny from being a land of obscurity and a part of an orient hitherto known at second hand through the exploits of earlier travelers scholars and conquerors egypt was to become a department of french learning now this is a line and a sentence that you should definitely underline from being uh, from being a place and a culture which was known second hand through the voluntary uh, experiences or through the voluntary um, archiving done by travelers by scholars who went to egypt because they thought that it was interesting 
or uh, you know because they thought that this is a place that nobody else knew anything about and so they went and they studied only some aspects of it from being just a place of interest to turning egypt into what said says egypt was to become a department of french learning to reducing a whole country and a whole culture to a department of learning in another culture that is true colonization and that is true orientalism and that is basically what it did uh, what uh, napoleon's project actually does and so the textual and the semantic attitudes become very very evident in how the uh, west actually deals with and interacts with the orient so on page number um 84 um he says that the job of this particular project was no less aggressive the job of the scholars and the engravers and the artists who came with um napoleon uh, because their job which was also equally aggressive as those of the soldiers was to put egypt into modern french and unlike the abele masquer's 1735 description of their egypt Napoleon's was to be a universal undertaking which basically means that from the very first moment uh, you know when Napoleon started um, this um, institution uh, it was seen as what we understand today as a fact finding mission and uh, everything that was seen everything that was said everything that was studied it was recorded and it was recorded in that great collective appropriation of one country by another that description of the egypt published in 23 enormous volumes between 1809 and 1828 and so the description's uniqueness is not only in its size or even its in the intelligence of its contributor that so many people who were at the you who were supposed to be the best in their own um, disciplines came together for this massive project uh but also in its attitude to its subject matter and it is this attitude that makes it of great interest to the study of the modern orientalist project and so um so said starts talking about the preface he says that it's not just the fact that so many scholars actually came together and started decoding another culture for the benefit of the colonizing culture but it's also the attitude that they take towards the culture that they're decoding that they're categorizing and that they're deconstructing and they're archiving so then um you know um, said gives a small portion from the preface of uh, this particular uh, text he says that uh he says egypt was the focal point of the relationship between africa and asia between europe and east between memory and actuality and he says place between africa and asia and communicating easily with europe egypt occupies the center of the ancient continent this country presents only great memories um and this is important because said will as will this preface keep on highlighting on how on this how this idea of memory is constantly juxtaposed with the idea of reality memory basically relegates egypt even the modern egypt to a thing of the past which has not been able to come into the modern world and it can come into the modern world only and only if it holds the hand of the modern day france it is a homeland of the arts and the conserves innumerable and conserves innumerable monuments 
Its principal temples and the palaces inhabited by its kings still exist, even though its least ancient edifices had already been built by the time of the Trojan War. So, its important time was so long back that most people don't actually even remember it. And the reference to the Trojan War is to the reference uh, is is a reference to the Greek Golden Age, um, which basically means that when our first Great Age began, their last Great Age was taking place. Right, and so he gives the name of all of these people uh, who went to Egypt to study science, religion, and the laws. Alexander founded an opulent city there, which for a long time enjoyed commercial supremacy, and which witnessed Pompey, Caesar, Mark, Antony, and Augustus deciding between them the fate of Rome and that of the entire world. Now, see here, instead of talking about the pharaohs of Egypt and uh, you know the great Egyptian civilizations and how they were the first civilizations to come about. Instead of talking about that aspect of the history of Egypt, uh, he decides to talk about how Egypt was uh, colonized even in earlier times by the Europeans, how Alexander founded an opulent city. So he gives the history of Egypt not as a history of Egypt on its own, as a civilization which is great in its own right, but as a civilization which has always been available to the West to be colonized and to be made great under the Western leadership. And hence also, um, you know, um, it is therefore proper for this country to attract the attention of illustrious princes who rule the destiny of nations. No considerable power was ever amassed by any nation, whether in the West or in Asia, that did not also turn that nation towards Egypt which was regarded in some measure as its natural lot. Now, this this idea of the natural lot, this comes up in most of the uh, most of the master-slave discourses that you find almost anywhere. And it's also fairly popular and fairly common in patriarchy, where they say that to be ruled by man is a natural lot of women. To be ruled by white, for example, is a natural lot of the black because they attract that kind of supremacy. Because it's in their inherent nature to be slaves, to be governed by other people, just as it's in the inherent nature of the West, of the white, and of the man to um, you know, rule over the East, the black, and the woman respectively. So that's, that's what. So Egypt is saturated with uh, meaning for the art, sciences, and governments. But its role on the world stage is only to be governed and to be taken over by other world leaders who will prove their mettle and who will prove their strength by taking over and colonizing Egypt. So um, uh, then on page number 85, Said says, in addition, this power would also enter a history whose common element was defined by figures no less great than Homer, Alexander, Caesar, Plato, Solon, Pythagoras, who graced the Orient with their prior present there. The Orient, in short, existed as a set of values attached, not to its modern realities, but to a series of valorized contacts it had had with a distant European past. Right. So the value that is posited in the Orient is not in its history, which continues for its own civilization and which continues for its own culture into the modern era, which gives its citizens or participants in its own culture a sense of historical and cultural identity 
Egyptians who can take their sense of historical primitivity and historical identity from the fact that they belong to one of the greatest races or at least historical races of all time. But the greatness of Egypt lies in the fact that it has been in contact with the East, sorry, with the West for a very, very long time. And it is, um, it is in fact in this particular contact with the West that the glorification of the Orient actually takes place. And then he says, Said says that uh, Fourier uh, continues similarly for over a hundred page, a uh, hundred pages, and then he talks about the size of the page. Please read that yourself. And so he says, out of the free floating past, he must justify the Napoleonic expedition as something that needed to be undertaken when it happened. But how do you justify all of this? The study of uh, Egypt and the kind of intellectual and resource material investment that Napoleon is making into this great. Um, project uh, for the study of Egypt and how does the West justify this kind of expense but at the same time also how does this kind of a project actually justify Said's um, larger argument about creating a textual orient right what what is it about this project that justifies its place as the centerpiece of Said's idea and ideological structure about the formulation of the Orient. And so he quotes on for he quotes Fourier as saying, one remembers the impression made on the whole of Europe by the astounding news that the French were in the Orient. Um, this great project was meditated in silence and was prepared with such activity and secrecy that the worried vigilance of our enemies was deceived. Only at the moment that it happened did they learn that it had been conceived, undertaken and carried out successfully. Now Saeed says that this, this, I mean, this is um, a little too dramatic for what had happened. Uh, but the coup de théâtre um, has its advantages for the Orient as well. That's what Fourier goes on to say. He says this country which has transmitted its knowledge to so many nations is today plunged in barbarism. Do you remember what Belfort was talking about Egypt? So it literally seems as if Belfort is taking his speech from this particular project, from uh, what Fourier is talking about in this huge 23-volume um, sort of encyclopedia of Egyptian knowledge that Napoleon is creating at this particular point in time. And um, this is when Napoleon actually comes in because Napoleon is the hero who can bring all of these factors together. Napoleon appreciated the influence that, is, that this event would have on the relations between Europe, the Orient, the Africa, on Mediterranean shipping and on Asia's destiny. Napoleon wanted to offer a useful European example to the Orient and finally also to make the inhabitants live more pleasant as well as to procure for them all the advantages of a perfected civilization. None of this would be possible without a continuous application to the project of the arts and the sciences. And you see how here there are so many things which are glossed over. The West is taking over the Orient so that the Orient can live better. The West is also creating this project as an investment in the arts and in the sciences. There is no mention that is made of the military exploits, the economic exploits that are going to result from this kind of a project. Uh, this kind of a reduction of the Egypt into a textual uh, entity rather than an actual entity. And this kind of a rewriting of the history as well as of the contemporary politics of a whole country and of a whole culture and reducing their perspective of themselves to a Western perspective.
there is no information of that and because napoleon is a great hero who is going to save egyptians from their own barbarity right and um, the orient is to be instructed into the ways of the modern west and that is of course the perfected civilization that fokker is actually talking about and um, to subordinate or underplay military power in order to aggrandize the project of glorious knowledge acquired in the process of political domination of the orient and so on and so forth and so this whole uh, paragraph on page number 86 it goes on for at least more than half a page and this is what said says this is these are the aspects of the uh, of the project that fokher uh, refuses to acknowledge in this large tomb that he um, you know uh, that he is prefacing Uh, that napoleon has uh, commissioned and that he is overseeing so he says that said says that fokher doesn't talk about um, how the military power or the military aggrandizement is actually being underplayed or to formulate the orient to give it shape identity identity definition with full recognition of its place in memory its importance to imperial strategy and its quote unquote natural role as an appendage to europe it is taken for granted that you know it's it, it's uh, egypt is important in imperial strategy but only as an appendage to europe and that it should be an appendage to europe is its only natural role we talked about this about 2 minutes ago to dignify all the knowledge collected during colonial occupation with the title quote and quote contribution to modern learning and this is how all all knowledge and all learning is political if you remember uh, said talks about it in the preface to his own book orientalism which we talked about which i talked about in the very first lecture of orientalism as well so um that's what a, that's what he's talking about here as well the natives have neither be consulted nor treated as anything except as pretexts for a text whose usefulness was not to the natives so this whole text is written on the pretext of giving information and knowledge and civilization to the actual colonized people but the actual usefulness of it, of this particular text is not to the colonized people of egypt but to europe who can now celebrate the actual uh, you know reduction and dehumanization of a whole culture into textual structures to feel oneself as a european in command almost as at will of oriental history time and geography and it gives a certain sense of power also to the egypt to the french that they can when they wish recreate rearticulate the history the geography as well as the morality of a whole different culture and they can bend it as they wish at their will and they can recreate it and they can rewrite it for their own purposes and for their own political uh, you know profits to institute new areas of specialization of course orientalism was a new area of specialization and it had its own political advantages to establish new uh, disciplines to divide deploy schematize tabulate index and record everything inside and also those things which are out of sight to make out of every observable detail a generalization and out of every generalization an immutable law about the oriental nature temperament mentality custom and type this basically means that everything to make out of every observable detail a generalization that anything that the european could saw in one place if they saw a european or sorry an egyptian doing one particular thing in one particular place they could say oh all europe all egyptians do this and by creating this kind of generalization they could turn these kind of observable details into generalizations and then from one generalization they could create an immutable law about it 
you know about oriental nature temperament mentality custom and type so they could say look i saw one egyptian doing this which means all egyptians do this and if all egyptians do this which is a generalization it means that this is an immutable law that all egyptians will always do this which means that if we have to control them we can control it by doing xyz things right so that kind of a reduction to stereotype and above all to transmute living reality into the stuff of texts to possess or think one possesses actuality mainly because nothing in the orient seems to resist one's power these are the features of the because uh, and this is important by the way i'll just come back to that for a second uh, because nothing in the orient seems to resist one's power the orient can be the orient is gullible they can actually be you know they, they can be uh, made to believe anything and they don't resist western power we still don't resist western power by the way and uh, these are the features of orientalist project entirely realized in the scripture of the egypt itself enabled and reinforced by napoleon's wholly orientalist engulfment of egypt by the instruments of western knowledge and power and this is what said says is the most enduring and the most representative you know uh, way in which you can look at this relationship between knowledge and power and how it comes about in the representation of and before representation the articulation of orientalism in napoleon's project and that's why it is very very important so then what happens according to sai later on he says is that to save an event from oblivion is in the orientalist's mind the equivalent of turning the orient into a theater for his representations of the orient This is this is almost exactly what Fiofier says moreover the sheer power of having described the orient in modern occidental terms lifts the orient from the realm of silent obscurity where it has lain neglected except for the inchoate murmurings of the vast but undefined sense of its own past into the clarity of modern european science and this is where uh, you know all of those references that said has made earlier to gibbon and to other uh, projects of history actually comes in how the west uh, deigns to or how the west proposes to save the east is by bringing them out of their own inchoate murmurings about their own history and about the greatness of their own history into the modern world and how can they be brought into the modern world by being looked at from the perspective of modernity which is a perspective of science which is a perspective of empirical reality if you remember in the last section in the second section of the text there was a conversation there was a whole conversation about um, uh, newtonian revolution and how the newtonian revolution was seen as a turning point which created a sense of scientific rationality in uh, in europe representatively realistically and metaphorically and how because of this newtonian revolution not having been uh, brought into the east they could not really understand uh, you know they they've not yet left the realm of superstition and of black magic and so on and so forth so what said is basically saying is that uh, after napoleon's project after this great project um which according to said created the language of the orient that the way that we sort of understand it now on page number 87 he says quite literally the occupation gave birth to the entire modern experience of the orient as interpreted from within the universe of discourse founded by napoleon in egypt 
whose agencies of domination and dissemination included the institute and the description institute is the institute that he had founded and description is this 23 volume project written project encyclopedia the idea as it has been characterized by charles rue was that egypt restored to pros- prosperity regenerated by wise and enlightened administration which shed its civilizing rays upon all its oriental neighbors and after napoleon further down the very language of orientalism changed radically its descriptive realism was upgraded and became not merely a style of representation but a language indeed a means of creation which basically means that uh, people believe that the orient was reconstructed reassembled crafted in short born out of the orientalist's effort the description became the master type of all further efforts to bring the orient closer to europe thereafter to absorb it entirely and centrally important to cancel or at least subdue and reduce its strangeness and in the case of islam its hostility for the islam orient would henceforth appear as a category denoting the orientalists power and not the islamic people as humans nor their history as history so after this particular project you know the way in which um the oriental discourse was changed it it was changed absolutely radically according to said and he gives many examples of that which are given in the first paragraph on page number 88 please read them and he says that these are uh, these creations turned out to be highly stylized simulacra elaborately wrought imitations of what a live orient might thought to look like so all of these were uh, all of these were texts in themselves which created certain impressions of the orient a lot of that was a result of what napoleon had done but uh, because these were highly because these were considered to be highly stylized imitations of the orient nobody thought that it was completely real but at the same time it perhaps had more power uh or maybe some people thought that it was real but it had more power than the real encounter with the orient because it could deconstruct the orient in ways in which actual interaction with the orient could not actually do and so uh so uh Nip- sorry not napoleon but said says that there are two projects which are very very important here which can highlight how this reinterpretation of the orient or rearticulation of the orient uh, was seen not just in the fields of science uh, not just in the field of arts but also in the field of sciences and he gives two examples one is ernest renan's system compare histoire générale des langues uh, semitique which is basically i think um, a comparative study of the languages of the semitic languages which was completed in 1848 uh, for neatly enough for the pre volney and the geopolitical project and the geopolitical project is ferdinand de lesseps suez canal which was also associated with the england with the english occupant occupation of egypt in 1882 and these two uh, uh, according to said are prime examples and they manifest not only um, you know um, and their difference is not only in the scale but also in the quality of orientalist conviction uh, renan who wrote the comparative semitic languages study he truly believed that he had recreated the orient as it really was in his work because he thought that by comparing the languages of the of 
you know the semitic languages and this would be a comparative work with the uh, with the european languages he could really and truly contextualize and create a new understanding of how the languages and through the languages the culture as well as the lives and individualities of the orient actually function but the lesseps on the other hand was according to sai this is on page number 88 was always somewhat awed by the newness his project had released out of the old orient and the sense communicated itself to everyone for whom the opening of the canal in 1869 was no ordinary event and so creating a canal creating the suez canal uh, which basically meant that you know greater maritime um, trade could be made in between uh, egypt and uh, europe it basically meant that even even an event of this kind of a context and this kind of um, you know this kind of use even that can be and that has to be read as an orientalist monument as as an event which has oriental overtones and so um, you know said quotes a little um, um said quotes a little um, article uh, written by thomas cook about the suez canal and he says on november the 17th the greatest engineering feat of the present century is to have its success celebrated by a magnificent orient inauguration fete at which nearly every european royal family which will have its special representative and it's in, it, it's interesting to note and said is going to make note of this later on um that uh, lesseps the lesseps uh, who was the engineer who oversaw the creation of this canal and who created funds for who was spearheading this project was actually not an engineer at all but he was so convinced in the supremacy in the sort of colonial supremacy of the uh, project that he was overtaking that he had undertaken he knew that uh, it would stand as a symbol of colonial european colonialism um, that he actually forged through and he was able to build the canal where a lot of others had failed earlier and he says truly the occasion will be an exceptional one the formation of a line of water communication between europe and the east has been thought of for centuries occupying the turns of minds of all of these people and uh, pharaohs also who many centuries since constructed a canal between the two seas traces of which remain to this day everything connected with the modern works are on the most gigantic scale and a perusal of a little pamphlet descriptive of its undertaking from the pen of the chevalier de sensois impresses us most forcibly with the genius of the great mastermind monsieur ferdinand de lesseps to whose perseverance calm daring and foresight the dreams of ages has at last become a real and tangible fact the project for bringing more closely together the countries of the west and the east and thus uniting the civilizations of different epochs uh apart from everything else that's fairly obviously uh, colonialist in this whole um, in this whole rant there is a very last line which becomes more symbolic than anything else of what said is talking about he's saying that uh, this project brings together and um, i mean just um, see the word project here again everything is a project and that is what said is also talking about he's he calls this particular section also project he says this project brings together uh, countries of west and east of course that kind of bif- bifurcation remains but he says 
uniting civilizations of different epochs different epochs is different time zones and if there is uh, any way in which um, the east and the west will be considered civilizations of different time zones the west is going to be the civilization of the modern times and the east is going to be the civilization of a, of of a past which has been long lost and with that also its civilization so this combination of old and old ideas and new methods is basically this side says is a genuine imposition of power of modern technology and intellectual will upon formerly stable and divided geopolitical and geographical entities like the east and the west that is what cook perceives and what his journal speeches prospectus and letters the lesseps advertises right so this divide the what before this was the geographical divide actual divide between the east and the west now becomes connected and so after this in a way that said is hinting after this uh you know the divide between the east and the west remains only uh, a metaphorical and a textual kind of divide because all the other divides have been broken down by the great civilization of the west uh, so said uh, gives a little bit of background of how um, the lesseps actually comes or um, he comes across the idea of actually building the canal his father came to egypt with napoleon and napoleon himself was interested in digging a canal and uh, which he did not actually do because he was misinformed by his experts and he never thought that it was actually doable and it was because of this this constant that the the recurrence of this idea of this bridge between the east and the west and so many historical references that were already available that the lesseps actually undertakes that um, you know undertakes the project he comes back to egypt and then he starts it he had no real engineering background on page number 89 said says and the only thing that actually kept him going and uh, for him to be able to make uh, you know uh, keep his investors interested in the project was because he was very diplomatic and every time that people sort of wearied and people um you know asked for where all of this gray or all of this money was going because it was a very very costly project he could actually he could pour out statistics but at the same time he could also um he had this whole historical and sort of mythological um you know mine of information and mine of sort of stories that he could dig into and he could take out wherein all of these great interactions between the east and the west had taken place and how great people like napoleon were interested in this kind of project so you see how i think basically the point that said is trying to make here is this kind of a constant interaction between the political the economical the colonial as well as the textual and how the textuality of egypt in itself the fact that it has been seen as a sort of metaphoric and symbolic site and symbolic place which can be textualized which can be understood which can be mastered and hence because it can be mastered so it can be used as a bolstering sort of standpoint and place from where to launch an attack on or a colonizing mission on other places in the east as well and this this the same kind of relationship between textuality and politics and economics and the arts is then later on is again cited in um 
in this reference that Saeed gives on page number 90, uh, it says that in 1862, the Académie Française, it offered a prize for an epic on the canal. And the epic on the canal is basically, it's just a lot of hyperbole about how this thing had been dreamt of by so many people in history. And it actually, in the last line, even if you don't understand French, in the last line, there is also a reference to Christ. There's a reference to a lot of other very, very famous people. But this kind of hyperbole, this kind of mythologizing narrative is very, very common as far as the relationship between the East and the West is concerned. And that's basically what, um, you know, the Lesseps was counting on and what Saeed is trying to sort of uncover. Such exploits were their own justification despite its innumerable pedigree of failures, its outrageous cost, its astounding ambitions for ambitions for altering the way Europe would handle the Orient, the canal was worth the effort. It was a project uniquely able to override the objections of those who were consulted and in improving the Orient as a whole to do what scheming Egyptians, perfidious Chinese and half-naked Indians could never have done for themselves. So it was brilliant. The canal was brilliant according to Saeed because it, it, uh, it could be seen as a civilizing mission. It could be seen as a way metaphorically and realistically of taking civilization to these you know scheming Egyptians perfidious Chinese and half naked Indians but at the same time the real purpose of the canal was also to make maritime trade between Europe and between the East much much more economic and much more pocket friendly so it could serve both purposes so in that sense it was a perfect example of what orientalist narrative or meta narrative was all about and that's what, you know, that's what uh, Le the Lesseps speeches, letters, pamphlets were laded with this kind of, you know, energetic theatrical vocabulary, which could make people feel like they were participants in this kind of a large global theater. And they were the ones who were turning the, you know, who were turning the wheels of historical narrative, uh, which included, um, you know, the past of which narrative it included such great names. And so they could also become part of this kind of a grand narrative in that sense. Right. Um, so he says uh, in the pursuit of success, he could be found saying of himself, he created, fought, disposed, achieved, acted, recognized, persevered, advanced, nothing. He repeated on many occasions could stop us. Nothing was impossible, nothing mattered finally except the realization of uh, the le resultat final le grand, but which he conceived, defined and finally executed and so on and so forth. And in fact, there were envoys from the Pope who came to the opening of the canal and they all spoke about how, how, how an imaginative and great spectacle the Lesaps had actually created for the world and that's what this whole passage is about. <coughs> Uh, the whole world actually seemed to be crowded to render homage to a scheme that God could only bless and make use of himself. Old distinctions and inhibitions were dissolved. The cross faced down the crescent. The West had come to the Orient, never to leave it. Until in July 1956 when uh, Gamal Nasser would activate Egypt's taking over of the canal by pronouncing the name of the Lesseps. In the Suez Canal idea, we see the logical conclusion of the Orientalist thought and more interesting of Orientalist effort. 
because according to site the west asia had once represented silent distance and alienation that's the mysterious orient for you islam was militant hostility and this militant hostility always opposed european christianity and what the suez canal did was to be able to overcome you know this this kind of hostility that was uh that was symbolic in islam and this kind of mystery that was always a part of asia and uh to be able to dispel that mystery and to be able to overcome that danger the orient had first to be known then invaded then possessed then recreated by scholars soldiers and judges who disinterred forgotten languages histories races and cultures in order to posit them beyond the modern oriental scan as the true classical orient could that that could be used to judge and rule the more, more modern orient so what these scholars would do is according to sai this that they would create a sense of the morality and identity structure of the orient by taking uh, their cues from classical orient from classical literary texts they would try to decode what the orient was and then they would superimpose these ideas of what the orient was on the modern orient so that even the modern orient himself did not have access to his own identity and so the obscurity faded to be replaced by hot house entity the orient was a scholar's word signifying what modern europe had recently made of the still pop peculiar east and the lesseps and his canal finally destroyed the orient's distance it cloistered intimacy away from the west its perdurable exoticism the exoticism which was so threatening to the west could be defeated by such projects as the lesseps suez canal therefore the notion of the oriental is an administrative and executive one and it is subordinate to demographic economic and social sociological factors for imperialists like belfort and these are the last couple of lines of the of the section said says for imperialists like belfort or for anti imperialists like j a hobson the oriental like the african is a member of a subject race and not exclusively an inhabitant of a geographical area right even though geography is metaphorical in this divide between the east and the west right but it starts from there and by uh, you know what the lesseps had done was he had melted away the orient's geographical identity by almost literally dragging the orient into the west and finally dispelling the threat of islam right this displacement of symbolism uh, you know this displacement of sorry geography by symbolism that was according to said uh, it was uh, it was achieved through the projects like the the lesseps suez canal and new categories and experiences including the imperialist ones would emerge and in time orientalism would adapt itself to them but not without some difficulty and i and those are the things that he is going to talk about in the next section which i am going to uh, discuss in another lecture